0: This week on The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. What are the consequences of not connecting our landscape? Well, the consequences aren't just about ecosystems. They're about society. They're about economies. They're about future generations.
1: I'm Neil Harvey. This week, it's Don't Fence Me In, linked landscapes and citizen science on The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. ecologists say the surest way to heal an ecosystem is to connect it to more of itself. The famous naturalist Aldo Leopold put it this way, quote, The last word in ignorance is the man who says of an animal or plant, what good is it? If the land mechanism as a whole is good, then every part is good, whether we understand it or not. Who but a fool would discard seemingly useless parts To keep every cog and wheel is the first precaution of intelligent tinkering, Of course, our human civilization is entirely dependent on nature. Yet by shredding the web of life, we've unstrung the fabric that supports us. Compounded by the onset of climate disruption, nature itself is physically on the move, but finds itself fenced in. But today, an innovative global movement is arising to restore life-supporting natural systems by reweaving nature's connections. In this half hour, we hear from visionaries Mary Ellen Hannibal and Justin Bersharis. They're at the forefront of connecting nature back to itself and connecting people with solutions through the emerging movement of citizen science. This is Don't Fence Me In, Linked Landscapes, Citizen Science, and Wild Nature. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. When Mary Ellen Hannibal began writing her book, The Spine of the Continent, she set out to paint the bold vision of what it would actually look like to restore landscapes on big scales and what it would take. She depicts the visionary initiative led by the Wildlands Network, which links about 36 nonprofits and other allies along the Rockies, all working to restore the tattered web of life along the spine of the continent of North America. It spans 5,000 miles from the Brooks Range in Alaska to the Sierra Madre Occidental in Mexico.
2: And the Spine of the Continent is an initiative to create linked landscapes down the Rockies. So when I heard that term, linked landscapes, like what does that mean and why do we need to do it? That's what made me really go down the path of investigating.
1: Hannibal learned the term linked landscapes from the work of the iconic conservation biologist Michael Soule.
2: Michael's insight was that breaking up the landscape, isolating wild areas making islands out of our natural places, was going to hasten extinction rates.
1: One hundred years ago, the U.S. government created national parks such as Yosemite and Yellowstone. As a nation, we wanted to limit impacts on nature within those boundaries and preserve them for posterity. Enter the law of unintended consequences. By examining the data, biologist William Newmark discovered that putting up boundaries around natural areas actually hastens extinction if those natural areas are not connected to other natural areas.
2: And in short surmise, the way to stem the tide of extinction is to give nature and natural areas room and connection. So I think of connectivity. Connectivity is the basic fundamental concept that my book, The Spine of the Continent, is about. It is proven all over the world and undertaken all over the world as the hedge against extinction.
1: Hannibal learned that there are two ways that connectivity is being disrupted. One is the physical linear disruption of the landscape. For instance, the migration loop that one single herd of pronghorn antelope has taken in Wyoming every year for millennia. When natural gas was discovered below the Pronghorn path, the area became the Jonah Drilling Fields, one of the birthplaces of fracking.
2: And all of a sudden, huge industrial America moves into the area. So, you know, hundreds of wells are being drilled. Huge trucks are coming down. And they notice this uptick in mortality of Pronghorn because these people are driving right over the path of the Pronghorn. Now, Pronghorn are OCD, you know, I've had kids say, well, why didn't they go around the, the wells? Well, the pronghorn are not going to go around wells. It's another case of instinct. They go one way, and that's the only way. And if something is in their way, they stop. And you have all these pictures of pronghorn stopped and terrible incidents of pronghorn being decimated by, like, a, a freight train. And they're, they're going across railroad track or they're standing on the railroad track, I mean, they just, they don't get it. They have to do their thing, and we have to help them do their thing.
1: That's when the supervisor of the Bridger-Teton National Forest instituted innovative ways to help the pronghorn. Niffy Hamilton used tricks of the trade such as pathways over, under, and through roadways and growing wild edges to agricultural fields. Federal legislation provided the first regulatory protection anywhere in the lower 48 states for wildlife movement. Hannibal also learned about another dimension of nature's ways, vertical connectivity, the vital connectivity among species and the forces of nature.
2: So the food web, we have the food pyramid. The creatures at the top of the food pyramid, the so-called apex predators, are going extinct at a faster rate than others, partly because there's fewer of them to begin with, like at the top of a food chain.
1: Apex predators are kind of like a policeman. They play a keystone role in the entire ecosystem. Without them, things go haywire. Apex predators along the spine of the continent include the wolf, grizzly bear, jaguar, and mountain lion. They need room to roam, both for food and reproduction. A national park boundary not only doesn't protect them, it can and does kill them. Just how important are apex predators? Check out Ghana's story of lions and baboons.
0: What are the consequences of not connecting our landscape? What are the consequences of allowing the isolation and loss of these wide-ranging species? Well, the consequences aren't just about ecosystems in a traditional form. They're about society, they're about economies, they're about future generations, they're about education.
1: Justin Bersharis is Associate Professor of Ecology and Conservation in the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management at UC Berkeley. He has 25 years' experience working with wildlife and rural communities in Africa and North America. His work extends to the economic, political, and cultural factors that drive and in turn are driven by changes in biodiversity. Justin Bersharis spoke at a Bioneers conference.
0: What we know, thanks to the amazing efforts of scientists and park staff in Ghana, is that we can look at trends in the the count of the number of lions, hyenas, leopards, and African wild dogs that were seen in these protected areas. And what we see is that today we have about 10% of what was seen on an annual basis, the number of these large carnivores that were seen in these protected areas. So these young lions, young leopards, they grow up in a protected area and biologically they need to leave their parents' home range or their mother's home range, and so they head out. There is no other range except areas outside of protected areas, and so they're quickly killed. They're killed because their skins are valuable or because they're eaten. They're killed and poisoned because of the threat they pose to livestock and people, okay? So it's a system where mortality is almost insured as soon as you disperse from that natal area, from where where you grew up.
1: The researchers noticed that as lions and leopards were disappearing, there were striking increases called eruptions of baboons. Justin Bersharas saw the disruption of what's called a trophic cascade, like what happens when you pull out the cornerstone of a building.
0: Baboons are what we would call a very effective mesopredator, an intermediate-sized predator. Baboons are omnivores like us. I like to say they're, they're like humans, but they're a lot smarter and stronger. Um, <laughs> but um, So baboons, we see, again, we, through all sorts of studies, baboons increase. Baboons seem to be the greatest beneficiary of the loss of these large carnivores. And this is a concept that actually Michael Soule again coined called mesopredator release. And the real interaction between lions and leopards and baboons isn't so much that they catch baboons a lot and eat them. This is actually a pretty rare occurrence. But they scare them terribly. Okay? Baboons are very smart. And baboons entirely change their style of living when there is a large carnivore around. And we know this because we've gone into places where there haven't been large carnivores in 30 years, and we throw poop from zoo lions on the ground. We play calls of lions at night. And for a week or more, we can get baboons to literally stay in trees, okay? They are so frightened, but they're too smart. They they, They figure us out pretty quickly. But it's through fear that these large carnivores dramatically change the number of baboons on the landscape and how these baboons act on the landscape. What does that mean for the rest of this community? What it means is that where baboons become the top dog, they are an incredibly efficient carnivore, an incredibly efficient predator. So they wipe out smaller antelope, anything small enough for them to eat. They kill all and eat all other primates that are smaller than them, which is most primates. And they decimate bird communities by feeding on eggs. They're amazing harvesters of eggs. Okay? Biologists, ecologists often think of a trophic cascade in these sort of ways. We have humans driving the decline of large carnivores. That decline benefits baboons. Baboons decimate other species in their community, drives them to local extinction in many cases. It so happens that throughout West Africa, baboons also spread the seeds of an invasive tree. That's a multi-billion dollar a year problem in a region where multi-billions of dollars means a lot more than it would here. And so the baboons also spreading this invasive tree. This tree is toxic to native insects, invertebrates. So this is the region of the world with the highest butterfly diversity on our planet, over 600 species. Where baboons become common, we have local extinctions of 500 or more species of butterflies, okay? So again, the classic trophic cascade. We've carved up the landscape, we lose a few single pieces and we've changed this whole ecosystem.
1: As the famed naturalist John Muir said, in nature, everything is hitched to everything else. By severing nature's connections, we've created a cascade of collapse that reverberates throughout the web of life, including us people.
0: The other thing that we've observed and recorded is that baboons are now the number one crop pest in Africa and they're also the number one predator of livestock. So there are really strong economic reasons why this trophic cascade should matter to people, okay? And so we've done documentaries on this, following baboon groups. They go out at night, they come into farms, they grab a lot of maize, they grab other things, they grab a couple chickens, and then a few of them grab a goat, and they're gone, okay? (laughs) And it's, you know, and I presented it in a humorous way. But you can imagine what this is like to this family watching this and trying to chase these animals. And so when, when we have this mesopredator, we've had several accounts of it killing children now also. So real economic consequences the threat caused by baboons to livestock and through predation on crops has led for an increased need for cheap labor for individuals to guard fields from these marauding baboon groups. Of course, the cheapest form of labor on our planet is child labor, okay? So in some places, this is from Uganda, 85% of school-aged children no longer going to school because they have to be at home to guard their crops, okay? In many parts of West Africa, those children are part of child slavery, the trafficking of children, okay? This is the cheapest form of labor. You put kids out there with sticks and you tell them you're here all day, you're here into the night, and you fight them off. You fight off the baboons when they get there. So we're not just talking about an ecological phenomenon anymore. We're talking about potentially lost generation, a generation that loses education. We're talking about a classic poverty pit situation where you have millions of people living in poverty who are unable to get education or other types of development, that they would need to get out of that pit. Okay? And so there's a huge economic, health, social consequence of this tremendous increase in this mesopredator.
1: Even when it's disconnected, there's no escaping the natural fact that it is all connected. And diversity is at the heart of resilience and health. When we return, the growing movement of citizen scientists applying new knowledge to reweave the web of life. And Mary Ellen Hannibal asks, can beavers help save us from climate catastrophe? This is Don't Fence Me In, linked landscapes, citizen science, and wild nature. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. To explore all available Bioneers radio shows and video programming, please visit Bioneers.org. Mary Ellen Hannibal takes us deeper into the ways keystone species of animals make the land that makes the climate that makes the world go round.
2: Here and everywhere in the world, there's another huge implication of losing the top predator, which is really on something very fundamental, and that's the geological carbon cycle. So really, I mean, can we talk about animals having an effect on the geological carbon cycle, the thing that brings us mountains, erosion, landmasses? Yes, it does. It absolutely does.
1: Once upon a time, not so long ago... One of the most essential builders of the spine of the continent was the beaver. Little did the European newcomers to North America realize just how important beaver's job is. When the Pilgrims landed, over 60 million beaver populated the continent. Starving, the Pilgrims learned from Native Americans how to hunt them. Beaver pelts became a huge business for 300 years until beaver were virtually exterminated. Mary Ellen Hannibal
2: The thing about beaver is they change everything when they're on the landscape. So they build their dams, they slow down the flow of water, they clean the water, because slowing it down, the sediment goes to the bottom, the temperature changes in the water, and more native fish live in that water. More insects live on beaver ponds, more birds come by beaver ponds than small mammals, large mammals. Beavers are called a keystone or highly interactive species. So are wolves, by the way, because wolves have this impact that goes all the way down. And But beavers are like the ultimately hospitality pros. They create landscape. When they're on the land, they change how they keep a flow of how carbon is sequestered into the soil. And that's why I say they have this impact on the geological carbon cycle, because the soil is a very different kind of soil when there are beaver there. More native grasses live in it. Native grasses have deep roots all the way down into the soil, and that's where mycorrhizal fungi grow. Mycorrhizal fungi, actually nobody completely understands how, but it siphons carbon from the atmosphere. I mean, it's crazy, right? Who can believe it? But it happens. So what happened in the West is we take all the beaver off. We, the, the waterways start to degrade because the waterways are no longer slowed down by beaver dams. But then all this cattle is inserted onto the landscape to put a business on the landscape, to keep people there, to develop an economy. So what the cattle do now And it's not necessarily so. There are ways to graze cattle that are actually beneficial for soil, but that's hardly ever done, unfortunately. They eat all of the greenery down to the dirt. They never give the plants time to grow up past what's called browse height. So then there's no vegetation on the sides of the rivers because they've eaten it all. So there's no habitat. The beaver can't live there because they need to eat and they need woody plants to build their dams with, so the beaver leave. So you don't have the plants, you don't have the beaver, and you lose everybody else.
1: Enter Sherry Tippy, former Arthur Murray dancer, cuts hair for a living at the Aurora Men's County Jailhouse, sweet as can be, and swears like a sailor, but beaver lover, and soon to be citizen scientist.
2: So she's home with her mother, who still lives with her, and she's ironing her costume for the night, and she's watching the news. And this is 30 years ago in Denver. And a story comes on the news about a golf course where a beaver is cutting down trees. And the story is this poor manager of this golf course saying, I'm hiring a trapper to come and get rid of this beaver. And you can imagine if you are the manager of a golf course. You wake up in the morning, and this you know, gigantic tree has been felled. I mean, beaver deserve their reputation. They are good at their job, and they are like, you turn them on, and you can't turn them off. You know, they do it. They cut the trees down. So they cut down these trees, but they do it in such a way so that the top of the tree goes toward the water, because they take the top of the tree. That's where they cut their logs to make their dam. Now... You have to sort of think about that, don't you? Like when you're cutting down a tree, like which direction is it going to fall? They know exactly where to do that. They know exactly where to put their lodge so that when it freezes, they have one inch of airspace between the ice and the top of their lodge. They just know how to do that. They know how to do everything. So she's listening to this um, newscast and she calls up the golf course and she says, "Um, you don't have to kill the beaver. You can just capture the beaver, and you can move the beaver to where it's wanted. I saw this on National Geographic. And the golf course manager says, nah, I'm killing the beaver. Or you go talk to the trapper. So she called the trapper, and she said to the trapper, you don't need to kill the beaver. And he said, I'm killing the beaver. And she just insisted. So they said, fine, you come and trap the beaver and take it away.
1: With the help of the Fish and Wildlife Agency, she acquired some traps, and set another kind of trap.
2: So she's no dummy she called a newspaper reporter who accompanied her to trap the beaver and cover the whole story. And she has been at it ever since. And a lot of people want beaver. There is a movement in the West of understanding that both beaver and wolf are very salubrious on the ecosystem. So ranchers who can't heal their landscapes any other way bring in beaver because they will heal the landscape very quickly.
1: Citizen scientist Sherry Tippy has now been relocating beaver for over 30 years, setting them loose to do their ancient job of healing the landscape. Parallel movements are spreading globally to restore other keystone species such as wolves, jaguars, and grizzlies. Mary Ellen Hannibal is deeply encouraged by the burgeoning movement of citizen scientists, such as her ecologist friend, Mary O'Brien.
2: When I was in Utah with Mary O'Brien, that was a volunteer trip, was five days camping in the Fish Lake region. Incredibly beautiful. We were doing transects and measuring browse height of different kinds of willow for a project that Mary has been doing for nine years, which is to document whether there's good habitat for beaver to be reintroduced there or not. And... She's collected all this data that citizens have collected volunteering for a certain period of time, and she takes those time series to the Forest Service to show them where and when grazing practices should be changed. Now, there's no change in any legislative way unless you have data to back it up. And data cannot be like what happened last year. It has to be a time series of data.
1: And then in San Francisco, there's Beach Watch
2: for more than 20 years, volunteers have go out and they have transects at beach, and they very methodically collect data on seabird mortality and tar balls. And it's really fascinating because the oil that they pick up on the beach can be traced back to its source. So you can find out what ship that came from really fast. So this is something where, at the moment, we have this enormous, incredible computing satellite technology opening the doors to all of us, contributing little pieces of data that can be aggregated in very large ways.
1: Mary Ellen Hannibal points aspiring citizen scientists to cool tools such as the app Naturalist and the website Corridor Connector. Government is on the move too, such as the Western Governors Association that's developing the Interstate Wildlife Corridors Initiative.
2: But going forward, we all know that we've got to revitalize this relationship that we have with nature. We have to each and every one of us find a way to get dirt underneath our fingernails, metaphorically or literally. And there's many, many burgeoning opening opportunities for this and what we all need to do as citizens is understand connectivity in our own neck of the woods and make sure that connectivity persists whenever any kind of land use change is about to be undertaken. Know where you live. Uh, Live where you live. And who are your native writers? What's your native ethos in every single way? I think when people really directly understand that we all have power over some Connectivity, you can put a plant on your windowsill. I just have a deck in the city, but I have hummingbirds and I have butterflies. And that is helping butterflies. You know, there's, there's corridors and little connectivities that we can all create no matter where we live or what kind of property we, we have.
1: Mary Ellen Hannibal and Justin Bosharis, citizen scientists and scientists joining hands to heal nature by connecting it to more of itself. Don't Fence Me In. Linked Landscapes, Citizen Science, and Wild Nature. You can hear more from Mary Ellen Hannibal or explore more Bioneers radio shows and video programming online at Bioneers.org. For information on attending the National Bioneers Conference and Bioneers events in your area, please visit Bioneers.org or call 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, is a production of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network interview recording engineer Jeff Westman. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Ricodisc label. Additional music was made available by Sounds True at SoundsTrue.com. For more music information, please visit radio.bioneers.org. This is program number 0514.
2: This program was made possible in part by Organic Valley, pasture-raised organic dairy products bringing the good from our family to yours. Visit organicvalley.coop. Mary's Gone Crackers, healing the planet through conscious eating, gluten-free and vegan products since 2004. Learn more at marysgonecrackers.com. John Masters Organics, feel good about looking good. Visit johnmasters.com. Funding also provided by a grant from the Park Foundation dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues and by the generous support of listeners like you.